Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And we're going to be diving right back into the Middle East today. Uh, today's episode is actually about Lebanon and the protest-slash-revolution that are happening there. But, you, you know, every now and then we'll follow up on an episode if we, you know, if we screwed something up or, or we, you know, learned something from some feedback we got from listeners and so we always, you know, we'll always do that when, you know, when the opportunity presents itself to to see how we learned and, and see how the world's changed since we last talked about it. And the way I wanted to follow up, I was talking to Xander about this as we were preparing for Lebanon, was that after our episode about the Syria withdrawal, right? And like, was it kind of a, you know, was it a, a were we abandoning our allies and stuff like that? You know, we got some flack, at least from some listeners that are also friends of mine, that were kind of shocked and they said, isn't it, isn't it obvious that this is like a disaster, right? And just, and just, you know, that the like strategically terrible and, and that lots of people are going to die. And just like, you know, how, how could you not be sitting there saying that this is awful? Right. And, you know, and, and I kind of was scratching my head a little bit because it, it also felt like we we're a little bit alone, right? You go to all these news outlets and they're like, it's a disaster. It's strategically terrible. Lots of people are going to die. So, you know, we kind of sat there alone going, huh, it seems odd that people are reacting this way, which is kind of a tacit way of saying, you know, maybe they're wrong. Anyway, we it's time, you know, we can actually look back a few weeks later and see how things are going since then. And Xander, you're a little more on top of this than I am. So I figured I'd turn it over to you. Yeah, I might be a week out of date ish, but there there has been a fair amount of resolution with the Turkish incursion in northern Syria since we recorded the episode. Now, because Trump is so integrally tied up with all of the stuff in northern Syria, with the U.S. troop withdrawals, and that has clearly become very politicized here in the way that it's discussed, I think it might be helpful to just detach that aspect from the narrative real quick. Like, forget that it's Trump that's making these decisions on northern Syria right now. And I know that that's like a hypothetical that might be uncomfortable or like not possible for some folks. But like, let's just pretend that there's like a president X. It doesn't matter who it is in pre- in office right now. And we've seen what we've seen in Syria. So let's recap then what's happened since we did the last episode. There has essentially been an agreement between uh, Russia and Turkey that, I mean, we talked about this 19 kilometer sort of safe, safe space in northern Syria. And that looks to be fairly solidified. The U.S. has endorsed it. And the YPG, which if you don't know what that stands for, you should read my article on Syrian acronyms on our website. The Mm. YPG has retreated to certain areas northeast in Syria and has kind of backed out of the areas that Turkey wanted to claim as sort of a, a buffer space. And at least some Kurdish leaders are expressing not joy, but contentment with the deal that Trump helped facilitate with Turkey. But sorry, we're pretending that Trump doesn't exist. So anyways, wh- what does this mean for all the parties <laughs> engaged? Yeah, I tried. The United uh, States. Yeah, the United US. States. Yeah. The U.S. The U.S. was not directly involved in the bilateral deal between Russia and Turkey, but the U.S. definitely played a role in mediating. And, you know, clearly they were involved in some ways. 
So Turkey has essentially gotten what it wanted. It has a an area where it is perpetually allowed to intervene into Syria that's about 20 kilometers deep, which is deeper than it was allowed to intervene according to the 1998 Adana Agreement. And it's in the areas that it wanted. The YPG has withdrawn. It doesn't look like they're going to be coming into too large of a confrontation with Turkey. And I, I caveat that because clearly Kurdish mil, uh, militants and civilians have been killed in this operation. But there has been a general strategic withdrawal by YPG forces into the northeast of Syria. And they've at least expressed, like I said, contentment that with what, what's gone down. Assad doesn't need to worry about attacking Turkey because even though Turkey is sort of challenging his sovereignty a little bit in the north right now, so long as Turkey says this is limited and we're not going any further and it's really just this little space we want, then Assad can essentially keep up the, well, it's not quite an illusion, but the idea that he really controls the country. So his control isn't challenged, which Russia's happy with because that means that they don't have to face the risk of going to war with Turkey. And the U.S., is not withdrawing his troops. <laughs> right. it's, with, it's withdrawing some of its troops, but it's keeping some other ones up in the, quote, northeast. And I know, Eric, this is like one of the things that you focus on a lot, where they very well may be protecting oil fields. And like a lot of people have said, oh, you know, this is so stupid. Why would the U.S. do that in Syria? It's not like there's a ton of oil up there. And you can argue maybe it's because they, the U.S. wants to keep some oil revenue out of the hands of ISIS. But realistically, if there's still 300 or so U.S. soldiers up in the northeast of Syria where all the YPG and its Kurdish allies are, that's going to add act as a blood barrier to further right. Turkish incursion, just like it did in 2016 when Turkey invaded the first time. So right. everyone kind of seems about as happy as you can get in the Middle East with a civil war with so many different parties. And I was kind of surprised that that was the outcome because you very rarely see anything that isn't terrible news coming out of Syria. And that's, I don't know, Eric, it's just, it's like the best possible deal I could imagine given where we were a month and a half ago. Well, there you go. It's also the case that the, it could, it could be the case that the fact that there is this barrier, this kind of, you know, obviously Turkey has the right to muck around in there, but a clear, border buffer for Turkey actually creates a higher level of stability on that border going forward because Turkey doesn't necessarily face, you know, as high a threat from the PKK, which, you know, go to the go to Xander's article about this, but they're the terrorists, right? They're the Kurdish terrorists and there are Kurdish terrorists um, and they don't face that kind of, you know, as, as much of a threat there to this highly populated area for them, that's in their south center, including a city that I should be able to pronounce, but is like uh, Shanliurfa. And I've forgotten most of my Turkish, uh, but I think it's Shanliurfa. That's pretty big. And they now have a buffer there. Whereas in the northeast, the largest big town, uh, it's not called Batman, but it certainly looks like Batman is much farther away and there's a little bit less risk there. So, you know, shocking. I'm looking at this, you know, live UAMap.com, which shows what's afoot. And it's, you know, Syria's absolute chaos in terms of what lines are where. But you definitely have U.S. troops in the northeast along all these oil fields trying to keep them out of the hands of ISIS. In the southeast, there's a ton more oil fields. The Kurds seem to have all the oil fields. So good for them. Sure, they're making use of that. And then there's a ton of activity and a ton of bombing going on, or maybe, sorry, not a ton. It's comparatively a lot. That Turkish border area is pretty calm, it looks like. And the just south of Idlib, is there is bombing going on, and it's much more of a hot zone. So that seems to be what's going on in Syria right now. It's going to continue to suck, unfortunately, uh, because that's that's what happens when we decide it's a or when the world or a group of people decides like, oh, we'll just topple the dictator of this, you know, the the brutally handed, you know, minority dictator of this multi-ethno sectarian state. That'll totally work out the way it did every time before. So it'll continue to be bad. But it looks like the tricky thing has been largely resolved. So well, on to the regularly scheduled program. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, speaking of 
divided societies oh, that gosh. have led to civil war. Oh gosh, and yeah, and uh, people trying to undo the government or trying to undo the current set of the government. There, not necessarily saying it's going to end poorly, but enter uh, just move a little bit southwest from Syria, and we're now in Lebanon. Lebanon. What's going on in Lebanon? Well, Lebanon has been witnessing really, really massive protests. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people in this state. It is a six million person country. And these have been going on since about mid-October. These are essentially the largest protests that Lebanon has seen since the end of its civil war, which ended in about 1990 and lasted 15 years from 75 to 90. And... You know, I make jokes about not being fun at your cocktail party uh, on this sh- on this show before, but I actually had a real life experience with this uh, about a couple of weeks ago. In late October, I came across this video, and it was a video put together by Lebanese protesters and anti-government opponents. And I was I was so moved by it that I was I was sure that everyone at my friend's annual Halloween party would would be just as as inspired by it as I was. And I was not exactly on the money with that one. But it did turn out that a Lebanese friend of mine was at the party and we ended up having a really fulfilling, interesting, and just like generally amazing conversation about what was transpiring in Lebanon, his country. And his words were, you know, most people don't know, but my country is having a revolution right now. So what we hope to do with this episode is explain what exactly is going on right now in Lebanon, why it has ramifications that stretch far beyond Lebanon's borders, and why then, with all of this context, I found this video to be such a powerful piece of media. Definitely propaganda, but still a powerful piece of propaganda. So we'll have the link to the video in the show notes at reconsidermedia.com. But here's an audio clip of it, and we'll play it again at the end so you can listen to it after our, our context bomb. yeah, so what everyone is saying there in that video is I'm financing the revolution. So you'll see in the video, it's all sorts of people from all walks of life, some of whom look very Western, some of whom look very you know, very more conservative Muslim, if that kind of makes sense in terms of the dress and, you know, just lots of lots of different skin tones and and ages and religions and all this such. And and Lebanon is a, you know, wildly multi ethno sectarian state. And so you have all these people saying I'm financing the revolution and they're saying it in response to this Hezbollah leader guy, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, who is accusing the essentially the West, right? You know, kind of uh, the United States and all of its all of its imperialist cronies of financing these protests, financing this revolution. You know, so it's kind of a very classic. Hey, this is this is outside provocation. This is you know outside. Is they're doing us dirty here, and this isn't real. Right. This isn't legitimate grievance from the inside. And so you have all of these, you know, citizens who got together and probably, you know, submitted themselves to someone that said, I'm financing the revolution. So 
I guess what struck me about the video is that it really takes a lot of courage to record a video of yourself that you know is going to be passed around and used as a media piece for or against rather an organization that is easily the most powerful organization in Lebanon and, you know, known for doing pretty violent things and and, a, you know, a political mover maneuver at that that could actually potentially challenge the the political elites in a way that draws retribution. So that's that's what struck me about the video. Right. Yeah. Hezbollah is actually, you know, there's there is there is risk that if the governmental structure in Lebanon changes substantially, that Hezbollah's power in Lebanon will decrease. And you have yeah, you have all these people basically poking, you know, poking a stick in the eye of this uh, Hassan Nasrallah Hezbollah fellow. And yeah, and now he's got, you know, he's got video of exactly who all of them are in case he wants to kill them all. Yeah. On on a broader level, we'll step back from the video and ask now, why are people protesting in Lebanon in the first place? As I mentioned a moment ago, it's a pretty small country, 6 million people. And despite its size, it has an extraordinarily complex, uh, co- complex system of government. And this is due to its extremely heterogeneous population. There's something like 17 officially recognized religions, and there are different sects within the religions, uh, or in some of the religions. And the government's composition tries to strike some sort of balance to ensure that all of these different groups have some form of representation. And it's been this way for a while, but in its current incarnation, it's been that way since the Civil War ended in 1990. Right. And my understanding is that much like in, so similar to Iraq, where in Iraq, what's happening is you basically need Kurdish and Shiite, you know, Arab Shiite and Arab Sunni representation in the top executive top of the executive branch and i believe i believe it's also the case that in iraq the parliament there is a minimum representation of you know a certain number of seats must be of certain ethno-sectarian groups in order to make sure that they don't get you know non-recognized and of course that was the idea of that was to say hey look everyone should buy into this system because everyone has representation everyone has a voice you're not going to get swamped out by just, you know, Shiite Arabs, which was a, you know, which was a major fear and, uh, you know, to some extent happened in, in some ways after the Sunni Ba'ath Party was, you know, was taken out of power, all that stuff. And so these kinds of deals where, which is, which, by the way, is unimaginable in a place like the United States, right? Can you imagine saying like, ah, yes, well, if the president is is a white Christian, the vice president has to be, you know, like a black Muslim. And you're just like, you're just, right? It'd just be crazy here. But these kinds of constitutional fixes are not too uncommon in these, you know, heterogeneous states where there has been ethno-sectarians, you know, brutal, bloody civil war in the past where, you know, driven primarily out of fear of being dominated by, you know, another group. And so that's why these that's why these get built. But for the past 30 years, so that's that's what happened, you know, end end of the Civil War, about 1990, gets upgraded to have these three these three slots. One of them, they're the president, the prime minister and the speaker of the house. The president must be a Maronite Christian. The prime minister must be a Sunni and the speaker must be a Shiite. And everyone said, great, that will totally work out fine. But for the past 30 years since the Civil War ended, Lebanon has continued to lack many basic services, you know, the, these kinds of basic services that many believe governments are supposed to do first and foremost. And so some examples here are garbage is poorly disposed of. So in 2015 and 16, there were protests when the government couldn't find a solution to just disposing of waste that remained in the streets of the city. Right. So it's just trash piling up. Lebanon has also not had dependable 24 hour access to electricity since 1975 when the Civil War began. So for a little context, that's what, 45 years? Yeah. Um, so there are people who have, you know, adults who have lived their whole lives without reliable electricity. Interesting side story here. To supplement Lebanon's limited power generation capacity, Turkey began sending what are called power ships to provide additional electricity. That is, 
power plants on ships that are portable and can dock wherever. And those of you who are at a computer, just go Google image. You just need the word power ship. It's bananas. There are these giant, it looks like gas power plants on a barge. that can just plug into a power grid, which is super cool and pretty insane. And I didn't know about these when Xander wrote the power ship thing down. I was like, Xander, do you mean partnership? That there was a partnership with with Turkish power companies? It's like, no, there power were power ships. Ship. Yes, ship of power. So that's a thing, <laughs> apparently, which, you know, cool. Yeah, the, the side story here is interesting because it's just such an unusual thing, but it, it kind of shows you both how Lebanon lacks some of these basic services and the structure of the government has just often gotten in the way of making even marginal process. Turkey started, I think, selling electricity to Lebanon in 2013. It got it went on for maybe three years or something like that, and they were going to try to sign another contract. And as encouragement for signing another contract, Turkey offered Lebanon free electricity for all of the summer of 2018, which is you know when electrical grids often have the heaviest draw, especially in the Middle East where it's very hot and you need to run air conditioners. And sounds pretty generous in a lot of ways. I see what you did there. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it, it really does. And Lebanon ended up turning it down. And you ask, why would Lebanon turn down free electricity when it has shortfalls every day on a regular basis during the summer? And Amal, which is a Shiite political party in Lebanon, claimed that the power ships weren't good enough because they were just a stopgap measure and they didn't really fix the long-term problem with Lebanon's electricity generation capacity. And if we if they kept using the stop gaps, they would never develop those abilities on their own. So However, this might have been a you got to feel the heat in order to in order to do the work. Sorry, I'll st- I'll I'll stop with the puns. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no man, pun it up. Uh, because you know the forty ninth year, Eric, is the year where the pressure, the heat, is really going to make a difference. Oh, jeez. All right. So. So Amal, this political party, said that we shouldn't use these stop gaps. We need a long-term solution. And at first you might think, well, that sounds pretty reasonable. However, other people in Lebanon began accusing Amal of having close financial ties with companies that produce diesel generators in the country. And so clearly a conflict of interest. Diesel generators are far more expensive than both Lebanon's electrical grid. And it turns out that the power ships can actually generate electricity for a cheaper price per kilowatt hour than Lebanon's own electrical grid can by like 50%. Can you freaking believe that, by the way? Just just how bad does your electrical generation have to be such that Turkey can go like, you know what, we're just going to put we're going to put a power generator on a boat and we're going to drive the boat down and it's going to be cheaper than what you set up where you have, you know, you imagine it in a regular power plant, you have pipelines, huge pipelines that are meant to get you the gas or whatever you need. And, you know, the, the site can be like totally optimized and you can build the thing as big as you want, have cooling towers and all that. And, you know, Turkey had to fit all this thing onto a boat and it's still cheaper. Yeah. Which like, which like if you think about it, if you think about how crazy it is that this is cheaper, right? There's a reason the United States or like no other country in the world puts its, you know, power generators on boats because it's way more expensive to run a power generator on a boat, right? Why would you do that? It's expensive, obviously. But the fact that it's cheaper is just bananas. And and a, a really important detail here, because it means that in 45 years, Lebanon has not been able to build affordable power generation service, even though it's right next to tons of oil and some gas. But it's also right on the Mediterranean, so it can get access to all sorts of stuff like it's it's one of those things where, you know, we're not talking about deep in the heart of, you know, like deep in the heart of the Amazon where you got like, oh, man, how are you going to get power here? Right. Lebanon is very well connected. It's it's like no bueno that they can't that they can't sort this out. Yeah. And I I what we'll try to introduce maybe additional layers of complexity as we go through the episode, because I think once you have sort of like a model for how like the political parties in Lebanon work, you can start to kind of see how they might divide a little bit. And and the re- another reason I like this power ship generator story is because it's an example of how even though much of the tension that exists in Lebanon and that drove the civil war was along sectarian lines, it wasn't always. So Amal, if you're paying attention, is a Shiite political party 
in Lebanon. And Hezbollah is also a Shiite political party and militia group in Lebanon. And they they took opposite sides on this issue with the power generator. And Hezbollah actually was one of the orga, uh, organizations accusing Amal of sort of having these crooked ties and, and blocking the free electricity in order for the gain of its own parties. So back in the Civil War, you saw that a fair amount. You, you had Christian Palestinians fighting Maronite Christians, or you had Syrian Sunnis fighting Palestinian Sunnis uh, in order to support the Maronite Christian government, which was actually kind of strange because it meant that for at least a period in the Civil War, Syria was on the same side as Israel. But we'll come back to a little bit more on some of that later. Yeah. So if you think of, again, just to, just to double down on how complex this is, for those of you who paid attention to Iraq, you're like, oh, Sunni and Shia and Kurd. Okay, so Sunnis hang out with Sunnis. They get along. They look out for each other. Shiites, you know, look, you know, look out for the Shiites. Not necessarily, right? Like, we need to not oversimplify, you know, people's kind of like crazy ethnosectarian. Like, there are, you know, intersectionality is a word now in 2019, but people's like ethnosectarian identity is highly intersectional. And, you know, if there's a political threat from people who share your religion uh, because they, you know, because like the, the, you know, the demographic, I, the demographic access of identity, right, is not along religion today, then it's it's go, it's on, right? It's on. People won't go like, oh, well, you're a Shiite. We shouldn't fight. We should all just get along. Not how it works necessarily. So, and this this is like one why it's so hard to get your head around Lebanon because the there are so many. You know, it's not that it's not that humans are inscrutable or that it's just chaos, but it it is that there are all of these conflicting interests in any given person's heart, right? That there are all these, all these like different needs where they're, you know, depending on kind of the need that's most important or the threat that's most prescient, people will have different, you know, will will emphasize different groups or alliances that they, you know, that are important to them. So all of this stuff about national identity kind of brings us back to where we were with the protest, because despite someone might maybe feeling like they lean more in one direction or eight directions at the same time, kind of like Eric just said, more and more the protesters in Lebanon are appealing to a sense of national unity, a sense of national identity that will overcome some of the roadblocks that the, they believe the sectarian government has been has succumbed to in the last couple of decades. And adding insults to injury for a lot of these folks is some of the current political elites who clearly benefit from this this sectarian governance, the system of sectarian governance, were during the Civil War, way back when, basically warlords like Hassan Nasrallah. I think by the end of the 80s, he, he was involved in the Civil War. He was old enough, and he's still in power and one of the leaders of the country now. And so these this generation of leaders have stayed in power following the Taif Accords that ended the war back in 89, 1990. So protesters are saying, you know, this this doesn't make sense. This sectarian basis of government has been failing us, and we want to come together as one people, as Lebanese, and have a secular Lebanese government. And that's been a lot of what the demands have looked like. Yeah, so it turns out that, you know, if it's guaranteed that the president must be a Maronite Christian, right, if you're if there's a limitation on competitiveness, it, it opens the door to a lot of corruption, right? And um, that's that's part of the challenge is that, for example, the re- the most powerful Shiite organization, you know, like Shiite identified organization in Lebanon is Hezbollah, right? So when the Speaker of the House is a Shiite, guess who has a lot of sway over who that person is? So even if the body, you know, in the chair might change, the there's this kind of uh, plutocratic or oligarchical leadership that doesn't. And so people are people are sick of that. And the catalyst was this, you know, was this like power shortage uh, that was, you know, not being dealt with. And there was there was belief by a lot of people that the decision not, you know, the decision not to take this contract to provide power, which hurts people, right? It's bad when you don't have electricity. Electricity is important that this was made for corrupt reasons, like literally for people to line their pockets. Uh, and there's always, you know, and that has just like, you know, bubbled over, pick up with pockets. You know, ultimately it was a tax on WhatsApp, which is bananas. Uh, but, you know, they gave it a shot. It was a tax a, It was a tax on WhatsApp that really got things uh, going at first, 
So they would live, you know, they would just track your WhatsApp calls and put a tax on it to raise more revenue. Uh, this actually happened on October 17th. This led to a small protest in Beirut that quickly grew. They spread to the rest of the country and, and the government walked back the taxes and said everything will be fine. But it turns out there's frustration over all sorts of other things. And so this was, again, merely the spark on the catalyst that really got things going. And the government has also proposed a set of reforms that, uh, you know, if they pass, might end up uh, being enough to get people going, but maybe not. But the pressure has stepped up since then. So it's been a month. Uh, it's nowhere close to slowing down. Again, I just checked liveuamap.com. And I promise I am not just a running advertisement, but it's a really good resource. It's uh, useful. It's useful. It, it aggregates uh, tweets and geolocates them so you can get a good sense of you can get a sense of what's going on. But that pressure uh, caused the prime minister, Saad Hariri, to step down. But that didn't cut the mustard either. So a lot of the protesters also want the president and prime minister to resign as well. And things are definitely still kicking uh, and they're starting to get a little bit violent. So one person has been killed and the protesters are claiming that uh, the concessions made to them so far are limited and that people in these entrenched positions of power, such as Nasrallah or, you know, who has Hezbollah or President Aoun must must offer much more fundamental reforms and they want a more technocratic government to take over. And, and one note I want to make about this is you might be thinking, you know, this has been going much shorter than Hong Kong. This has been going, it's been going much shorter and it's been, it's been less pervasive across, say, Beirut. But a lot of more changes have happened. And it's one of those things that um, this is a good kind of case study where, you know, in Hong Kong, it's been a long, you know, nobody, uh, nobody's, for example, allowed to have guns. And... It is also the case that Hong Kong, you know, is a uh, is kind of they're exposed to uh, let me just say, you know, kind of free thought, and they're you know they're basically not behind the Chinese like internet firewall. The Chinese government can't control what they're allowed to see, can't just propagandize them as much as it wants. Their education system is more open, and so you know these Hong Kong protests they they got stuck in Hong Kong, and Hong Kong can't defend itself other than with public opinion, global public opinion. Whereas in Lebanon, as we see, for example, from Hezbollah, it's really easy to get a gun. Um, and therefore, you know, when you're the government or even when you're Hezbollah, you have to think like, hey, if we want to crack down on this, it's going to get bloody. And then do we kind of want a full, you know, full mass uprising and a war? Because uh, the Chinese can say, you know, the Chinese are playing with public opinion and, and the Lebanese government is playing with war. And so the, the, the bargaining chips are very different. And it's also the case that you know, this is this is pan-Lebanese rather than just stuck in one one city. So you get these very different outcomes from it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, a question that I get fairly often about topics like this is why why does this even matter for people who aren't directly involved so in this case it would be if i'm not lebanese why should i care about what's going on in lebanon and to be fair i think i think it's a fair question because if people don't feel direct relevance to some affairs or they seem sufficiently localized you know there's only so much time in a day why should this particular issue be important and the thing is that what happens in Lebanon, despite its small size, really does impact the rest of the Middle East in ways that aren't entirely obvious. It's sort of a junction point in the Middle East where a lot of these different various groups live. And because it's so heterogeneous and because there have been large scale migrations into Lebanon, both the Palestinians following the founding of 
the state of Israel in 1948, as well as a million Syrian refugees just throughout the course of the Syrian civil war, which again, six million people in Lebanon. So you can do the math. It's a huge percentage. These these large demographic trends mean that there are lots of different competing security interests that sort of meet and conflict in Lebanon as well. So domestic events in Lebanon rarely remain purely domestic and external affairs, things that are happening in the region can really heavily affect Lebanon's domestic politics. So just as an example, if you look at the Lebanese civil war, which again, 1975, 1990, we won't get into all the causes of this war. We'll just look at sort of like the thing that sparked it. And it happened when Maronite Christians, who were essentially the most powerful entity in the government at that point, which is sort of a holdover from the French colonial period after World War One, they started putting pressure on the Palestinian Liberation Organization or the PLO, which you might remember was led by Yasser Arafat. And if I were to hear this, a couple of questions would come to mind. Why is the Palestinian... Yeah. Liberation organization, the PL, why is it in Lebanon? Why isn't it in Palestine? And it's because after Israel was formed, uh, several decades of war happened. There's big war in the 60s, big war in the early 70s. By the time you get to the mid-1970s, the demographics of Lebanon had shifted because hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, Palestinian refugees, had migrated to Lebanon. And what that meant... And again, small population was a meaningful increase in the percentage of Sunni Muslims in the population. And many of these Palestinians felt that they had nowhere to go. This Lebanon was a new home, and they were not being fairly represented by what they considered to be an overwhelmingly Christian government. And that even at that time, basic services were being kept from them based on sectarian divisions when other Maronite Christians had better access to them. So... The Lebanese government, the reason they were concerned about the PLO and the reason that they started, this this was the spark that started the Lebanese civil war, was because the PLO was all about regaining Palestine back from Israel, which meant that the PLO was conducting operations against Israel from Lebanese territory. And the Christian Maronite government was afraid that this would invite Israeli retaliation. And that actually turned out to be true. Israel invaded Lebanon in 82. Indeed. They originally launched their invasion to target PLO militias in Lebanon. So think up, think a lot, in fact, like the Turks invading Syria to target militias hiding over the border, right, that were launching attacks into Turkey, right? It's a very similar kind of operation here. You know, the, the turns out because of these militias, right, and, and you can kind of think – you know, if you're a student of geopolitics or a student of, you know, international relations, you know, foreign policy stuff, uh, you know, it turns out the presence of these transnational militias means that the respect for border sovereignty is not as strong, right? Because that's just, that ends up to some extent being just life and becomes one of those things where the, the country that's getting rockets thrown at it goes, can you contain these people? And the ones like the one on the other side is like, uh, actually not really. It's like, all right, we're going to do it ourselves. Sorry, deal with it. Anyway, Israel invades Lebanon to target the PLO militias. And these were, of course, mostly Sunni Palestinians. And uh, even though, you know, some of the groups were more like the Muslim Brotherhood than, than like kind of the radically Sunni jihadist groups, right? But of course, when the invasion kicked off, Shiite Muslims in southern Lebanon resisted the Israeli incursion because, hey, you're, you know, you're invading my country. What's going on? And there were a number of these Shiite militias in southern Lebanon that, you know, were fighting against the Israelis as well when the Israelis invaded. And so over time, these disparate Shiite groups and, you know, they thought they sought to inspire a government based on the tenets of the 1979 Iranian revolution. Because remember, the Iranians are Shiite as well. Uh-oh. They would come together with Iranian funding to form Hezbollah. And that's how Hezbollah was formed. Yep. So it was, it was originally in, in, you know, unity and resistance against the, um, against the Israelis. And so Hezbollah is recognized as a terrorist organization by the U.S. and and other countries, while also remaining a legitimate political party within Lebanon. Ah! And uh, they were the only militia, as it turns out, that was allowed to remain following the end of the civil war in 1990 as a way to deter further Israeli aggression into southern Lebanon. Right. So they basically said, like, hey, keep us together and we can fight the Israelis if they show up. 
And Lebanon said basically, okay. And so this is the same Hezbollah that played a major part in the Syrian civil war from 2011 to now. Uh, and they continue, of course, to be Iran's most powerful proxy in the Middle East. And the, the reason Hezbollah is kind of such a pain in the butt for uh, the U.S. and its allies is that they'll regularly shell northern Israel with rockets. So they kind of just go out of the way to make life heck, uh, you know, hecking frustrating for northern Israel or for Israel. And the big fear that Israel has is that uh, Hezbollah, in coordination with Iran, could turn their dumb rockets, which usually miss things, yeah. right? Sometimes not, but usually miss things. They could turn them into precision-guided missiles. And, you know, if right now Hezbollah probably has like 130,000 rockets or so, and if these became smart, precision-guided, they could do a lot more damage to Israel than they've been able to do in the past, right? So imagine if Israel found out that Lebanon was getting a lot of, you know, smart missile technology, from Iran and starting to equip. If you know anything about the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, think that on a somewhat smaller, less Armageddon scale, but it would be that kind of reaction. It's like, this is an existential threat we have to deal now. It might be an invasion, might be a new war, right? And so that's all happening. You know, that risk is there. And this revolution that is looking to kind of desecretarianize the government is currently, you know, putting putting Hezbollah in a shakier position than they've been in a while and how are they going to react? So that has the potential to get to like kind of get hairy as this unfolds. So quick breather, because this is whenever there are topics like this that are super, super complex and require like intimate knowledge of these thousands of different little tiny groups. I think it's good to take a second to recap and just kind of like, here's where we are in the conversation, right? There's these protests. Some people are calling them a revolution going on in Lebanon and we're trying to understand why that matters for people outside of Lebanon. And we looked at the civil war that they had a couple of decades ago. And as soon as it devolved into chaos domestically, it pulled in Syria and pulled in Israel. Later in that civil war, and we'll keep going with the narrative here, later in the civil war, the U.S. ended up getting involved. And there was a, it was a multilateral, probably the U.N. peacekeeping mission that was sent. And today, another complication, the U.S. continues to provide military aid to Lebanon but still recognizes Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. So there's, there's all of these, like, but Hezbollah is also a legitimate political party. So like, who's getting the money? Who really controls the money? And yeah, it's really complicated. But let's look down south at Israel now and get a sense for how what happens in Lebanon can have a broader influence on Israel. And Israel is a very small country, right? If you look at it on a map, it's not very deep. It has no strategic depth. It's not Russia, right? And Israel's greatest fear is probably a two-front war, one that comes at them from the north, from Lebanon, funded by Iran and led by Hezbollah, while facing a, sim a simultaneous one in Gaza or the West Bank. So that would be two fronts it has to contend with at the same time. And Israel has generally won its big wars, like in 1967 and 1973, with like a rapid decisive offensive because they don't really have the resources to win a war of attrition, right? And over the last year or so, Israel has really had its eye more up to the north at Hezbollah, which it considers to be the bigger of its two threats compared to Gaza. However, there's this flare-up going on in Gaza right now. And if you're familiar with some of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict issues, you'll know that Hamas is one of the big names. But another name on the Gaza side is Islamic Jihad. And whereas Hamas is somewhat more affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamic Jihad is more explicitly Islamist. And what, what happened here, the details don't matter that much, but Israel conducted some airstrikes that killed this Islamic Jihad leader, Abu Al-Atta, who he, he used to be the head of Islamic Jihad, but he kind of began to go out on his own and like, you know, the uh, the prince of Islamic Jihad, he wanted to be himself or something like that. I don't know. Anyways, the point is he became uncontrollable, both for Islamic Jihad and therefore for Israel, because if you can't work between the political entities, then, you know, what's the point? So Israel is claiming that it decided to assassinate Abu al-Atta two years ago, but only did it now because the opportunity presented itself. So Israel conducts an airstrike. Islamic Jihad responds by firing 400 rockets at Israeli cities. These are all dumb rockets. Most of them miss targets. A few do hit homes and factories, but there's no, been no deaths reported. And Hamas initially stayed out of this. And Hamas and Islamic Jihad actually are often 
not friends, either adversarial or like grudging allies when it, they need to do something concerted against Israel. And after after Hamas stayed on the side and Islamic Jihad was firing all these rockets, and this is just within like the last week or two, people started accusing Hamas of, you know, cooperating unduly with the enemy. Like, why aren't you fighting back? Why are you are you helping Israel tacitly? So in response, Hamas fired like two rockets and just to like show fake solidarity, I guess, uh, towards a city called Beersheba near Gaza, clearly. And this was kind of like a token gesture of solidarity, but they were both immediately shot down by Israel's air defense system, the Iron Dome. Yeah, interesting how times can change that Hamas had to get a bunch of external pressure to fire a couple token rockets at Israel. Right. And, you know, there's there's a level of complexity here that is lost upon me that uh, I'm not going to opine on. But but just think about that. Think about the implications of that. Think about, you know, hey, Hezbollah is throwing rockets and Hamas goes like, mm, yeah, we're going to stay out of this one. Islamic Jihad was throwing rockets. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's what I meant. Islamic Jihad was throwing rockets and Hamas is like, yeah, we're going to stay out of this one. Like, good luck. Good luck with your rockets there. I hope it works out well for you. And so why are we even mentioning this flare up in Gaza, which is not next to Lebanon, unlike many other things that we're talking about in a show about Lebanon? And because, of course, what happens in Lebanon does not occur in a vacuum. You have all these different groups from all these different other countries that have interest in what goes on both in Lebanon and in other countries that are present there. And, you know, political revolutions or mass protests that turn into, you know, overturning government on Israel's northern border can significantly impact Israel's security, right? And we know how Israel uh, feels about its security and what it tends to do when it feels it's threatened. So Israel's actions in Gaza are at least somewhat linked to how Israel perceives its security on its northern border to be, which, you know, over the past four few years, it's been more obsessing over the northern border, Versus, uh, you know, kind of back in the day, if you remember the kind of the, the Gaza, you know, all the, the intifada and the, the, all the work in Gaza, or work in Gaza, all the, you know, frankly, invasions of Gaza, Gaza that Israel had gone through in the 2000s. And, you know, there were lots of raids. Uh, recently, there were lots of raids against underground Hezbollah tunnels that the IDF claims were going to be used to launch surprise attacks on northern Israeli villages. So they've been, you know, mopping all they'd been focusing on that and suddenly kind of turn their eyes to Gaza. And clearly what also happens in Lebanon impacts Hezbollah big time. Right. And what happens to Hezbollah impacts Iran's ability to exert power, exert power throughout the Middle East. And so if Lebanon falls on hard times, you know, due to, say, mass protests. Right. And Hezbollah can't afford to pay all of its fighters uh, at levels that it has in the past or starts missing payroll and people start to have to find jobs. Iran is going to be forced to cough up the money to fill the gap or risk losing a major tool of political influence. And part of the problem there is Iran isn't exactly flush with cash right now either. And if the government falls, does it create a vacuum that Hezbollah has to operate in to try to fill it? Or uh, if it quickly gets replaced by a highly secular government does that government become much more antagonistic to Hezbollah versus then in the past? And so Hezbollah suddenly kind of has to fight for its political life. And again, all of those things are going to trickle out to Iran, which is, you know, which has to think about how it's spending a limited amount of money in Lebanon versus, say, uh, Yemen or Syria or Iraq or also some other places that it has its fingers in the pies there. And so. You know, in other words, despite Lebanon's very small size, uh, we're talking about a country that is smaller, substantially smaller, both in terms of area and population than New Jersey. Right. So and when was the last time anything that happened in New Jersey had geopolitical consequences? Probably never. Right. (laughs) Like literally never. Uh But so despite Lebanon's small size, all these prior conflicts and this rising revolution have lured in more powerful countries uh, from the region and have an impact on these countries throughout the region. Syria, Iran, Israel, and of course, the United States is going to find a way to get involved. So it's, you know, it's a it's one of those butterfly flaps its wings kinds of things. Okay, that was a lot of information. And I'm actually going to ask you folks for a little bit of feedback here. We, we were very clearly repeating a couple of points as we went through that narrative. And the way Eric and I, the, or at least the reason why Eric and I laid it out that way, it was purposeful. It was because when I'm learning something brand new with a lot of moving parts, especially on podcast form, it's helpful to have it 
repeated here and there because often you're driving or you're at the gym, or you're walking and you miss an important element of it. And it's helpful for me. I'd be curious to hear if it's helpful for you. Email me at Xander at reconsidermedia.com or find me on Twitter, Xander Snyder X. So finishing up the rest of the narrative on Lebanon and coming back to the modern day, we can ask, is this a revolution as many protesters are claiming it to be? Is it going to be another civil war? Is it going to be neither? And even though the protests have dragged on now for about a month, they are becoming a little bit more violent. They started out very peaceful. And I really do just mean a little. There has been one death. It seemed isolated and there's been an investigation that's begun surrounding it. But there's still very, very large protests. They're still occurring across socioeconomic and sectarian lines. And coming back to this example of the uh, Halloween party I was at a couple of weeks ago, you know, as I chatted with my Lebanese friend, he had, it was an inspiring mix of enthusiasm for a prospective future for his country that would be better, but balanced with like extreme caution. And I don't want to speak for him clearly, but I, I think where this comes from is, you know, on one hand, he he said he hadn't ever seen his people, the Lebanese people, so unified in a goal that was emphasizing national rather than sectarian identity. But on the other hand, he's intimately familiar with how political division in Lebanon has led to a breakdown of society and mass violence in the not too distant past. And, you know, this is an interesting observation for me because on Reconsider, we've talked about the issue of nationalism in a general sense before, never with Lebanon, but certainly in the Balkans and other places. And Eric, I'm not going to speak for you, but I'm pretty sure I'm capturing your perspective on this accurately. You and I both basically think that nationalism is not like objectively negative, like it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It depends on the context. That was actually just kind of what came to mind. We don't even have this in the show notes, right? But but your point about, you know, imagine a, you know, a nation state that therefore more or less has to have one government, right? There has to be one constitution, one set of rules, you know, with some except with regional exceptions, but certainly one unifying set of rules. And you know, a lack of nationalism, a lack of, you know, identification with the nation state and pride in that nation state, you know, arguably has negative consequences when it's too low. When you instead identify with, um, you know, ethno-sectarian demography and therefore see your fellow country people as different rather than the same. Right. And so, yeah, we, I, I, you know, we're not here to do the thinking for you, but I certainly tend to think of nationalism sort of there's like maybe a scale, right? We're like too low and it's like, yeah, who cares about Lebanon, right? That's probably bad. And like Lebanon is so great that it should like take over everyone else. And uh, the Lebanese are so much better that everyone else should be our slaves. Like that would be bad, too, although they probably wouldn't get far with that attitude. But you know, but but this, yeah, this may be a place where a little more nationalism is, could could lead to a better outcome for, you know, people uh, in, in Lebanon and in the region. Yeah. The, the reason it really struck me is because but if you watch some of these videos of the protests and protesters, one thing that's constantly recurring is we are a one Lebanese people. We are, you know, we are a single unified nation. Our sect doesn't matter. And when my friend at this party was talking about it, and when he was enthusiastic, he, he, he was talk, his enthusiasm sprung from a sense of unity with his people. That's nationalism. That's identifying with other people in your nation rather than some sort of sub-identity. And it, nationalism very rarely gets brought up except in extraordinarily negative contexts. And that's, I think, probably because a lot of nationalism, examples of nationalism have been really bad ones. But anyways, just something, food for thought, something to ponder. Just rounding up the bit on Lebanon, the, the civil war was really, really complex, as we've talked only only a little sliver about. And it was subject to these constant developments and, you know, wars have a momentum on their own. But something that is worth mentioning uh, are the massacres that took place on all sides. But perhaps the yeah. most infamous one occurred in 1982 after Israel's invasion. And it they're referred to as the Sabra and Shatila massacre. Between 500 and 5,000 Lebanese civilians were killed, and they were mainly Palestinians and Shiite Muslims. The, this organization called the Falange, which was a Christian 
a Maronite, a Maronite Christian Lebanese militia did the killing. And something of note that's, there's a really wonderful movie out that I want to recommend was that the Falange was allied with the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. And when the massacre occurred, the IDF had established a perimeter around these two villages where where it happened. And essentially, I mean, the argument, some people will argue that the IDF was complicit in the massacre and didn't do anything to stop it. Others will say they didn't know that the Falangists were actually carrying out the massacre at the time. But that is a historical occurrence worth knowing about. And there's a movie called Waltz with Bashir, which came out in 2008. It's really a, a phenomenal movie. And it's told from the perspective of Israeli veterans who were involved in maintaining that perimeter around the refugee camp when the massacre was occurring. I highly recommend seeing this movie, Waltz with Bashir. Yeah. And so, you know, a civil war being 30 years old in which there was this deep ethno-sectarian fighting, right, in which, in which these ethno-sectarian groups slaughtered each other, you know, it's hard to get over that. And so it means that, you know, I, I don't want to speak, I don't, I don't have a window into the soul of a single human, much less someone in Lebanon. And, and so I can't say to what extent a new generation or a new outlook are ready to move past that, right? And move into ultimately a secular government. That doesn't mean a secular nation, right? But a secular government. That says, you know, the heck with all these demographies and ethno-sectarian rule sets. We just want to have a, you know, parliamentary democracy, right? And the shadow of that, you know, as this revolution or or protest happens, um, the shadow of that hangs over this. You know, the shadow of that civil war hangs over it. To what extent are entrenched ethno-sectarian powers going to fight back? Uh, if they're going to lose power and they start to worry that because, you know, we go full circle here to the to the the purpose of that initial ethno-sectarian kind of guaranteed leadership set where where, of course, the you know, the reason for it is if we think of, for example, you know, the end of the Ba'athist regime in Iraq, you know, one of the reasons for the insurgency there was was this deep terror among Sunni people, not just Ba'athists, that the Shiites in charge, you know, who have a majority in the country could just run them over, right, and do terrible things to them with this just straight up parliamentary government. And so if you give a straight up parliamentary government, you know, like, are these minorities going to start worrying about themselves or are these entrenched interests going to start worrying about themselves and worry about reprisals and, and all this stuff? And I'm like, yeah, this can get messy, right? This can get really messy really fast. It can also be, you know, it could end up being just beautiful and, and stun the world a little bit like the Cedar Revolution in 2005, although that wasn't perfect. But, you know, there was like, hey, everyone got together and said, like, let's kick Syria out. And that at least went fairly well. But so it's, you know, Xander, I don't know if you want to add anything to this, but like it's risky. It's it's potentially icky. Revolutions are risky. And you can get into a discussion about, you know, is there a line between political revolutions and social revolutions? And is one maybe safer because you maintain some structures of government or... I don't know, but you repeatedly see in the Middle East, years over years over years, the repeat of power vacuums leading to bloody affairs. Doesn't mean it's always going to happen in the future. It's but that's why this is a challenging issue that has a lot of people concerned. Yep. And should it devolve in some way into something ugly and ethno-sectarian, it's also going to pull in, you know, pull in a lot of other powers, um, a lot of other peoples, a lot of other lives into its orbit. And, you know, I guess this is the reconsider moment where we're recently been talking about these butterflies. And so, you know, of course, whenever we talk about something, you know, we, we have to curate our content You know, we can't talk about everything. We're not a new shop. We never want to be. And so we have to curate what we talk about. And so one of the themes recently about why we're talking about foreign policy are these butterflies, right? You know, the, the whole phrase, a butterfly flaps its wings and, you know, China and a tsunami shows up on the shores of San Francisco or something like that, right? You know, and people like to go like, oh, it's chaos theory. And what it really, what we really mean by it is that seemingly small things can have a big impact. And the reason we're on this, this theme about these butter, these seeming butterflies is that you have to think about, you know, us, us as, sorry, not just you, us as consumers of news media have an obligation to think about 
Why am I getting exposed to these events versus other things? And is my level of exposure to these events consummate with how much they matter? And of course, you know, we say at the beginning, we had this whole thing about, you know, about Trump's, you know, alleged or so-called or sorry, claimed, I don't know, not quite withdrawal from northern Syria and how that worked out and the level of, you know, attention, you know, temporary, very short term attention that it got. Right. And and it's worth it's worth asking yourself there as well. We like to we like to rub people's face in this a bit. But, you know, do you even know what's going on now? Have you forgotten about it completely? Are you just outraged about something else now? Right. You know, uh, of if you were part of the apocalyptic side of it, like. Did the apocalypse, you know, have you even checked to see if you were right? Did you follow up? All that stuff. But, all you know, rubbing rubbing anyone's nose in it aside, the, you know, the important thing here is like how much long-term consequence does that have, even though it got all this media attention on this argument, versus, you know, what are the long-term consequences of protests in Beirut about a WhatsApp tax starting to get a little bigger because of, you know, because of of corruption in uh, electrical purchasing among you know a Shiite political party, et cetera, et cetera, and how does that knock on? Um, and has that intertwined with all of these ethno sectarian demographies and the history of you know a pretty fractured nation and and intervention into it? How does all that as this unfolds? How does that start to have? impacts in you know in other nations and how does it you know potentially depending on how it turns out change the destiny of a region and um it has the potential to be pretty big so you know we never know what are going to be the things that have a big impact until they happen we never know for certain there are things we can predict that's kind of the whole point of the study of geopolitics and because you want to you want to be able to say, ooh, this is, you know, that this thing seems to matter. This thing will matter to others and this thing will stay isolated. That's kind of the question that all that stuff answers. But um, but yeah, I think the reconsider moment is is what you see the most of does not necessarily represent the thing that is going to have the biggest, most meaningful outcome. As an addendum to that, this is sort of a repeat talking point of mine. A lot of my friends will have heard it, but I I don't actually think it's reasonable for, you know, the average curious citizen to be aware of maybe, for example, all the details that Eric and I meticulously went up and dug up about Lebanon. And we're already mostly Xander. OK, yeah. Well, and <laughs> and we're probably more familiar with it than a lot of folks are just because of our backgrounds. And I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect someone who has maybe an hour a day to dedicate towards uh, being informed and wanting to be a responsible citizen to know everything. But I think sort of where I'm building on Eric's comments here is if there's so much out there that we may only have a surface level knowledge of, then is the rage justified? Or if we're feeling enraged about an issue, would it be worth just hitting the pause button for a minute and either going and do a little bit more work or waiting until the next morning before taking action on Facebook and, you know, tagging everyone who you disagree with? Hit pause on the rage button. With that, uh, would like to close out the show. We've now been doing Reconsider Eric for almost four years. Our four-year anniversary is next month. Wow. I should get you chocolates. <laughs> I like dark chocolate with nougat. <laughs> there uh, we go. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we should. I was like, oh, we should put Xander's address on the Internet. I was no. like, wait a minute, let's not do that. Don't do that. <laughs> like, if, you want to send, if you want to send Xander chocolates, send them to this address. No, never mind. Uh, so if you've been enjoying the show over the last couple of years, or if you're a new listener, thanks for being part of the Reconsider world. If you don't follow us on Facebook or Twitter, we post stuff up that's interesting. We engage with folks. We get show ideas at Reconsider Pod. If you want to help us keep the show going and um, market out to a broader audience, we have a Patreon where you can donate a buck a show or however much your heart and wallet is telling you at the moment you can do that at patreon.com slash reconsider as far as i can tell the most the best way that that reconsider the reconsider message spreads spreads is you go tell your friends about it right and so we're 
you know, what I love about what we do is that we're this resource where people could be like, oh, I'm fighting with someone about this. And we get all these stories where someone's like, I've been fighting with my parents about this. I've been fighting with my friends. And I'd listen to a Reconsider episode about it. And I asked them to, to listen to that episode. I didn't go, oh, listen to this episode. It's going to tell you that I'm right. Right. <laughs> and they said, listen to this episode. And, you know, what's the ultimate theme of Reconsider? Hey, this thing that you thought was really simple is actually really complicated. Right. And so people like these success stories I hear are people going, oh, you know, We've been having a running argument about this, but I heard this Reconsider episode about it, and it's actually really complicated. And I think if you listen to it and I listen to it, like, you know, we'll both learn some stuff. And then people listen to it, and then they hug, and they go, like, wow, that was really complicated. And maybe we have this, like, knock-on learning that every time we think something is, like, good, you know, like, super black and white, and we should just, like, scream at each other about it, and that'll totally resolve things. That when we realize it's a little bit more complicated, maybe, you know, we can have a more sophisticated, interesting discussion about it, and now... We have a real relationship where we're having real dialogue, which we desperately need in this country. All that good stuff. Right. Those are the success stories that we hear. People email us about them. They tell us about them. And they're like, oh, my God. You know, and, they, you know, and they say you're amazing. But, you know, it's a little bit of like you're breathtaking and we're Keanu Reeves being like, no, you're breathtaking because the people who actually have those conversations are the real, you know, they're the real MVPs, all that good stuff. I'm on a roll. But the point is, like the most the best way that you can help us. And the best way that you can help this this like movement and you can, the best way you can help those other people who are like these heroes as well and help help, you know, and, and like use us to help the country and all these things. Right. The, what can you do with Reconsider to help most? It's tell a friend. Right. And say like and don't say, hey, you need to hear this. Right. But instead, like I, I heard this and I learned a lot from it. Right. And I learned this and it challenged a lot of how I think about things. And I think you're really going to, you know, and I realize I appreciate that. You're going to appreciate that, too. If you share it in that way, people are going to look at you. They're going to, holy smokes, thank you, right? That that kind of thing, as opposed to like, as opposed to telling them like, oh, reconsider tells me what I already think. Like, I hope we don't, right? I hope we don't just make, you know, you just sit there and go like, oh yeah, that's already what I thought. Because if that's the case, like we're all just wasting our time. Um, kind of like Dan Carlin's last common sense episode. I know that was a sad one, right? Oh. But yeah, so, you know, tell a friend. That was a really long way of saying tell a friend, tell a friend. And with that, dear listeners... We'll close out for the day. Remember, as always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. And this is Eric signing off. وأنا عمول السورة أنا مول السورة وأنا مول السورة أنا مول السورة وأنا 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 مول السورة Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.